All right, good morning. Um, my name is Ricky Greer. I'm one of your teachers for this uh, apologetics class. Um, the other teachers are Dave, Dave Reimer, and Jeff Reimer. Um, today our class is going to be on is the Bible trustworthy? But first, I have to make you all groan again. So, um, how many apples grow on an apple tree? Ah, good job, all of them, yeah. Okay, all right, all right. So, I'm glad I had two. What do you call an elephant that doesn't matter? Yay! <laughs> All right. Um, so today, what we're going to talk about is the historical and textual veracity or trustworthiness of the Bible that we have today. Uh, we're going to ask... We're going to ask, is the Bible a trustworthy book? We will look and see if it can be trusted in the history that it, that it uh, presents and if the message has been passed on correctly and uh, completely over the past 4,000 years. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the Bible in these, in these areas, and I hope to dispel a lot of that today. I am going to ask you all to know that the information I'm giving you today is by far not all of it. There is mountains of information, data, books, web pages, videos um, that you can go to and look this stuff up uh, if you're interested. Um, you can fall down a very deep hole uh, in this area. Um, so today we could start with the fact that the Bible says it is the word of God and that it is inerrant. Second Timothy, uh, 3.16 says all scripture is God breathed and is useful teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, that's all good and well, but to be fair and to go about this logically, uh, to say the Bible says that it is inerrant is circular reasoning, and it's uh, bad logic. So, before you all shoot me as a heretic, uh, I honestly believe the Bible is the spoken word of God, but is there a better way or another way to prove that uh, it is what it says it is? And I believe there is. So let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains 39 books written by 25 or so authors. I'll put some information on the whiteboard. Uh, you guys can write it down if you want.
I'm going to write OT for Old Testament because I'm lazy. So the Old Testament is 39 books written by 25 authors, approximately. There's some books they don't know who wrote, um, some books that are written by multiples, and some, like I said, they don't know who the author is of all the books. The Old Testament was written down from 1445 B.C., Five eighty one BC. So that's a long time. Nine hundred plus years written by twenty five or what did I say? Twenty five, yeah. Twenty five people in at least two languages. Um, and so there are no original documents that we have of the Old Testament. The biggest reason for that is they didn't write things down. Uh, writing was expensive, uh, incredibly time-consuming, and uh, very fragile at that time. Things were written on clay tablets by literally etching it into the clay. Um, written on papyrus, which is uh, reeds that are processed in a way to cause them to be paper, then written with iron-based inks, which disappear over time. Um, so what they did is they had an oral tradition. They passed down their family genealogies they're important things that they learned verbally to the next generation. Um, that, that may sound like a haphazard way of transmitting information. In a modern area where we can't keep the same sentence going around five people in a group with a phone and telephone game, it does seem really haphazard. But it was an art and a way of life for that people. Um, you'll hear a lot of uh, people say that like the book of Genesis is a story, it's a poem, it's allegorical. Well, it is a book, or I mean it is a story, and it is a poem or written in that kind of a fashion because it's a mnemonic tool. It helps them remember it better. When you were growing up, you learned the alphabet song, right? And you learned the alphabet song to help you remember the alphabet. Well, that's why a lot of the Old Testament is written in, in that fashion, is because that way you could memorize it easier. So that doesn't make it any less factual. 
I mean, just because we learn to sing the alphabet doesn't mean the alphabet is a work of fiction, right? So, uh, young Hebrew boys would have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, memorized by a very early age and memorized perfectly in completeness, along with their genealogy and whatever else they were being taught. By the time they were adolescents or young adults, they would have the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. Um, it's a pretty phenomenal thing, right, to memorize all of that. Um, so that, I mean, and, and that's how they passed on information, right? Um, is this a trustworthy way of passing on information? Well, we'll look at that here in a second, but in the meantime, uh, with that information, is there any questions as far as that first part of this? So what we have written down, where did that come from? If, if it's mostly oral and the, the things were destroyed, but we have certain ones from later Yeah, I'll, I'm going there. It's <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, um, And I'm gonna, and I'm encouraging questions. Okay, if if while I'm talking, if I don't make something clear enough, please ask questions. Yes, ma'am. I just want to ask one question, and we'll probably be talking about this later. And I should know this, but where would Abraham be placed in that time period? Would he be in it at all? Abraham was in the books of Moses, and the books of Moses are those earliest dates, that 1445. Um, when he actually started his journeys, I think we'll, the uh, other classes we'll go into, I think we'll kind of get maybe into that a little bit. Um, kind of what I'm trying to focus on really is is not pretty much the stories in the Bible, but, but how we got what we have today. So I could find that information for you. So I guess one question. Yes. Yeah, written language goes back. They keep finding earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier written languages. I just heard the other day that they had found uh, another piece in that area over there, another written language that they were dating like a couple of thousand years earlier than what they thought the earliest written language was. So, and that is, but that is a good point. Um, written language is, is, wasn't around for all of that time either. So, when it did come around, they used it. But again, only the educated knew how to write. And those were few and far between. So, to answer your question now, um, that brings us to what texts do we have of the Old Testament? So the texts we have of the Old Testament, there are the Dead Sea Scrolls. So those are going to be the most prevalent and well-known 
uh, bits of text that we have of the Old Testament. Does anybody know when those were found? Seven. 1947 is correct. Yeah, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, but everything we have in Scripture comes from before they even discovered that. Right. That's why we just can go and confirm. You're right. So, so, but that's why, that's why we're going to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, the Dead Sea Scrolls are what is considered the earliest complete text in, in a single area of the Old Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written uh, in between 250 BC and 62 AD. That's a long time after 1445, right? That's a long time. The next full set of texts that we have are the Masoretic texts, which were a Greek translation, of a Latin translation of the, no? They're Hebrew? Oh, yeah. They're Hebrew translations, but they are 700 years later than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So those, the Masoretic translations compared to the Dead Sea Scroll translations, which, as we've already said, they use an oral tradition, but in that oral tradition, in the very little text that we have, in that 700 years, the book of Isaiah is the one they use most, there was 98% complete. And the last 2% of that, the differences, was grammatical or spelling. And that was it. Otherwise, it was 100% the same over 700 years. The next thing I found that I kind of found pretty interesting was the Keys Hinnom Scrolls. These are two silver scrolls that they found rolled up in a tomb in, in uh, that area of the world. They, oh. oh, there it is. They were found in 1979 in a grave from the seventh century. This is in in Israel. They're in a they're in a, a a grave in Israel. They were found in 1979, and they're from the seventh 
They're from the 7th century. So that is 400 years, again, prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in those, in those scrolls that they unrolled, they found um, a verse out of the Book of Numbers. And it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and grant you peace. This here is B.C. Yes. That's when they were copied. Yeah. yeah, that's when those seventh century silver scrolls were copied and then placed in a grave. So so we've even gone back further. So now we're almost halfway back to when they're saying the original texts were written. And they're still word perfect to what the Masoretic texts say, which is still the Old Testament. Um, it's just it's a little more evidence that they were very dedicated to keeping the words exactly the same. As a non-biblical reference, the Iliad was done the same way as was the Odyssey. They were memorized word for word and were maintained through an oral tradition for hundreds and thousands of years. So were these keys hidden scrolls uh, complete, like just scripture, or did they have other stuff in them? They were just, just that bit of scripture was all that was rolled up on them. And it was two of them. One was a little bigger, one was a little smaller. And, and that was all that was written on them, was that verse out of the book of Numbers. For their a history of their deities. Yes. yes. It's not just a Western classic. It's that's how scripture or important books were done back then. It's also important to note there's a lot more scroll and fragment evidence for the Bible than there is for the Iliad Odyssey. I think it's like thirty times or forty times as much. As as far as as far as New Testament goes. Old Testament, there's there's the Dead Sea Scrolls alone are voluminously more um, extant than are any original scrolls of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls represent an, an, an intact, complete version of the Old Testament, the first that they have. And, and the key would be the, the liberal who, uh, classical, classicist, who says, who reads and teaches the Iliad and the Odyssey as a matter of historical fact, whether or not they believe it's fable, should, we can encourage them to put the same degree of historical trust, at least, in the Old Testament, because there's more evidence for the Old Testament historically than there is really in the Odyssey. Yeah, and I will talk, I'll touch on the historical, archaeological evidence that's in the Old Testament as well. 
which which from what I have read um, is probably even more uh, convincing than than the textual evidence that we have because it they can actually date it back to the times where the Old Testament was actually talking about the land of Ur where where Abraham came from they have they know where that is they've they found it right they don't have textual evidence of it but they have archaeological evidence of of that um, but you're right the Iliad and the Odyssey before before I was before I was a Christian that was my go-to or one of my go-to weapons was the Iliad and the Odyssey um, if you haven't read it it's long and some of it is incredibly boring some of it is pretty cool um, interesting but he's right it is uh, was the Greek way of transmitting their pantheon of gods and how they came about to what they did and and some of their ancient history um, and how and how those things happened and and that was what I used as an argument against the Bible historically or archaeologically um, some of the things that happened in the Iliad haven't been proven some of those events and but again those are stories that were mnemonic devices to help them remember history right is there any questions about that One verse. There was two of them? There was two of them in the same grave, yes. And they both contain the same verse? Yes, ma'am. But they, they're word perfect. That, they're word perfect from, from that book. That was all that was on them, was that priestly prayer, that benediction. What was on the uh, Maserati, the whatever you call it? The Masoretic text? That's the Old Testament. It seems like it's important to point out that all our Old Testament Hebrew, or like our, our Old Testaments that we're holding in our hands, are based on the Masoretic text. So that's what they use as the primary document. And then they use the Dead Sea Scrolls to put in the little like footnotes at the bottom and stuff that help you. Some scholars say, some manuscripts say this and this. But we use the Masoretic text to make our Hebrew Bible. Did you all hear that? Okay. Thank you, Jeff. For saving me. It was based on the Masoretic and the and the NIV and the ESV. All of them today still are. What was the date that that text? Which one? The Mas the Masoretics. There. I didn't write that down. They're actually 
um, like in the 800s, AD, the 800s AD. AD, yes, ma'am. So, in, in other words, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, those 880 Masoretic texts were the oldest copies we had, right? Yes, sir. And so that Dead Sea Scrolls helped us leap way back to compare and see how Yes, sir. That's a good point. So. Until 1949, when the Dead Sea 47, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, all we had were the Masoretic texts from 800 A.D. Um, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were such a huge thing because they showed the 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 ability of them to maintain textual purity over massive amounts of time. And it's seven, eight hundred years where, where the books that they have in the Dead Sea Scrolls are virtually identical to the Masoretic texts that they had you know, that many centuries later, almost a, a millennium, right? Without any major errors. And let me clarify this. I will again in the New Testament. But... The errors that we're talking about are grammatical errors. They're scribe errors. They're a misspelling of a word or um, a, a complete weird word or something along those lines. There is zero difference in, in the prophecy, the morality, uh, or the historical teachings that those have. The, those errors affect none of that at all. What? The, the 700 years that you're talking about of when the Nazareth text was found and, and then leading back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was about seven or 800 years, or was written seven to 800 years earlier than that. Wasn't that in, within a, what we would classify as a generation? A generation would be your lifetime. So it would be hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of generations. But how long was... I thought Abraham lived to like 700 years old. Uh, well, that would be the Old Testament. But So I'm not sure what your, what your, what your question is. The, the time span between the Masoretic texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls is 700 years. We weren't living 700 years at that time. Um, we quit living. God had us stop living that long after the flood, which was a long, 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 long time ago. This, this 1445 is what they're anticipating Moses was writing down the Pentateuch, the first five books. This is not the life and times of, of Adam and Eve. The, that number 
would be thousands of years earlier than that. I don't. I didn't. But like 4,000 BC is what a lot of people yeah. consider creation. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I think yeah. Noah was around. Noah wasn't terrible far from. Yeah. So it was. It, it appears it was before 1445 BC. <laughs> yeah, it had been thousands of years before 1445 BC. So, so this is just the written. This is just the written text. This, I am not trying to teach the history from day zero to modern time. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose, the purpose is to show the continuity that the, that the Bible has maintained over, like I said, over 4,000 years. So from 1400 BC to 2019, is is a big long span to maintain textual clarity. Can I just say when Moses spent the forty days on Mount Sinai getting the word of the Pentateuch, that's when I assumed that a lot was revealed to Moses to write down the first five books. I hadn't counted on him having that knowledge passed down to him orally. But, um, I mean, 40 days on the mountain is, is what I was thinking was part of his history knowledge. It, it could have been. That's, I mean, that's kind of how I thought of it, yeah. but I don't know. The oral history would have been a big part of that as well. Yeah. Okay. But he was raised as an Egyptian prince. But the, he was also raised as a Hebrew. And then he went out to the desert for another 40 years. And, and the Egyptians, he would have had access to Hebrew history. The Egyptians wrote a lot, too. So he'd have had access to that. And so like I was saying earlier, um, as far as textual evidence goes, that's what I have been able to find. And that, between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic texts, that's a huge span to show that they were dedicated to maintaining textual purity. Uh, would you all agree? Yeah. Um, the next thing is the, is the archeological evidence, which there, I could spend days talking about that. but. A lot of people, for a long time, they didn't think David existed. They thought he was a fictional character like the, a lot of the guys in the Iliad and the Odyssey. But they've actually found the house of David inscribed in the correct time frame of when he would have existed. They found things with Solomon's name on it as well. Um, they found ancient cities. Like I said, they know where the city of Ur is. They've, they've excavated bits of that place, which is incredibly ancient. Um, Nineveh, they know exactly where Nineveh is. Um, what else was there? 
Oops. The cities of Nineveh, Babylon, Jericho, um, and lots and lots of the small cities in and around Jerusalem and and um, that area. They found tons, and they find more every day. It seems as though I read a thing where it said every shovel full that they turn over, they're finding new evidence of those areas there that relate historically to the Bible and to the the truths of that era. Of that era. Um, when I was first reading about these things oh, quite a while ago, I read that before the Bible was considered was lambasted so badly. Archaeologists would go to it as one of their first sources as to where to go look when they were going to go do archaeological research. They would go to the Bible and they would read it. That is how trusted it was. It has become distrusted, but for reasons not because of academic reasons. Um, the so, as far as archaeology, is there any questions about that? I would just say there's an archaeological study Bible that I think our church library has. If people are interested, is that right? Yeah. My yeah. dad has it, and it gives you those details. And there's, there's, let me say, there's a plethora of books out there to read both on for both sides and I would recommend reading both sides as well. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> she mentioned Hezekiah's tunnel. The tunnel that was dug for water, where they dug it, was to bring water into the city when they were under siege. And that's an Old Testament story that has been archaeologically proven because they've actually found that tunnel. And if I'm not mistaken, there's engravings in, inside the tunnel that tell us what it was and when it was done. I didn't write that one down, but that's a good one. Like the British Museum would have the um, Assyrian king's uh, boasting thing. Uh, Sennacherib was the one doing the siege uh, of Hezekiah. And he confirms that he was doing the siege. And he also confirmed that he didn't get to chop off all their heads like he wanted to. <laughs> So did you guys hear that? There, there is, there is, the king that was that had Israel under siege at that time. They have his tablet or his recollection of that war. Huge, kind of a boasting stone, and yeah. it details all of his executions of everybody, except when he comes to Jerusalem. He says, "I had them surrounded." And then he stopped. And then every other king, he's telling what he did to everybody. You don't want to 
when you look up Sernacharib, the spelling's in the Bible, in the book of uh, Isaiah. And Second Kings tells the story. Oh yeah, and Second Kings. Yeah, Isaiah, okay, Isaiah was the prophet at the time. There are lots and lots of Moabite tablets that that talk about the wars that they had between the Israelites and themselves as well that they have that there's a little revisionist history depending on which side you're on as to how this turned out but the time frames and everything all match the events other than who won or how they won or whether they won are are slightly different but there is they have hard evidence of those events as well archaeologically I don't worry too much when the tablets of one of the pagan kings vary a little bit from the Bible. Uh, my dad was a historian. He said, reading about our own Revolutionary War, he said, except for the dates of the battle and the names of the generals involved, if you read the English version <laughs> and the American yeah. version, you yeah. wouldn't even know you're talking about the same war. Yeah. To Victor. To the victor goes the history, right? That is, that's a very true statement. Um, the winner gets to write down what happened. Okay. Um, the last case for the Old Testament is prophecy. Um, there are, and I'm not going to dig into this too much either because we still got to get to the New Testament. So, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, a vast number of which have been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of them. Um, uh, Isaiah talks about how he would be persecuted. The Psalms talk about how he'd be crucified. Um, so there are just a lot of prophecies that were fulfilled in the man of Jesus and in other things. The book of Daniel for a long time was thought to have been written um, after, the, after the, uh, the events that Daniel foretold in there because they were so precise. Um, I didn't do enough research on how they have kind of countered that, but Daniel's, Daniel's prophecies of the the Greek and the Roman uprising were were phenomenally accurate down to, I mean, just people and places. The, um, so that's another thing that we can look at is the prophecy in the Old Testament and how it has been, and how it has been fulfilled. And it's pretty obvious, especially, I guess Jesus and that time would be a huge, a huge one. That's one we deeply rely upon. Are there any questions about that? Okay. So we'll get into the New Testament now. Um, as you could kind of see, I kind of struggled a little bit with the Old Testament. And the reason being is there's just not a lot out there with it, especially as far as way ancient stuff. It's just too old. The, the writings and stuff are too fragile. They just don't survive all those times. Um, the New Testament, on the other hand, is uh, 180 degrees different. That is an, a 
completely different story. So does everybody have this so I can erase it? Everybody have that? history that Moses would have been taught and all the Hebrews would have been taught I'm sure it was written down we don't have copies of that Moses wrote it down and and what he wrote down we don't have it was still an oral history we don't have those things from 1445 and if we do we don't know about it right we don't know what it is the oral history of the law um, and without getting into a great big Bible and theological discussion. Um, Cain and Abel knew what the sacrificial laws were. That's in Genesis. That's the second generation out of the out of the garden. They knew that they were to bring their first fruits, right? And that's what caused all the issues. So I don't know that they needed to write it down. I mean, they heard it straight from the mouth of God, from the mouth of Adam. I mean, it was one, right? And so a lot of the other things that go on in the Old Testament predate Moses writing them down. There's evidences in the Old Testament that they were aware of uh, the Sabbath day and, and the other Mosaic laws. They were just written down so that when they went into the new land, they would have them and have no excuse. Right? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Is it, did everybody hear that? Yeah. So, again, the oral tradition, that, that is how they passed information along. Written, written stuff, that's why there's not any of it out there or very little of it out there is because it is... It was incredibly time-consuming, right? And, and fragile. It just didn't ex it just didn't survive. So the New Testament, what we have today as the New Testament, the New Testament was um, written between 44 AD and 95 AD, the books that we have now. These dates are debatable infinitely to ad nauseum. We do not have any original autographs of these writings. So what we have to go on are copies. Um, the first complete New Testament that we have came around in about the mid to late second century. 
Yes, ma'am. That date can be argued to ad nauseum, depending on who you ask. I believe there is, but I don't know what it is. There's a lot of names for a lot of things. Um, these dates are, are fairly close, and as far as academics are concerned, I mean, 20 to 50 years, plus or minus, is negligible. So, so even like a secular With within within a bit, yeah. We'll we'll just say yes. So there are and, and these are the original authors, right? This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James. James is the one they they usually credit with the earliest writings is James. Um so this is when the actual writers were writing their stuff down. And then they were passed on both orally and written. But again, they used an oral tradition that because that is how they did it still to that day. The oldest text we have is a fragment from the book of John that dates back to, again, Debatable, but about 85 AD. And that is a fragment. If you look at it online, it's teeny, it's, pe it's a little piece. John was, well, he couldn't write it if he wasn't alive. It's very close to still being alive. 85 AD. If Jesus was crucified in 33, and John was a teenager, 85, he'd have been in his 90s. He did live a long time. He died a, he died a peaceful death. They think he died around 100. So he would have been still alive. Yes. 90-something is when I've read that he died, around 90-something. If, if people have, have a hard time believing about the oral tradition and memories, you, you should talk to Kulsum, who goes to church here, grew up as a Muslim. She just had massive amounts of, memorized. of the Quran memorized. Oh, the whole thing. Yeah, at a very early age. She really and so pe people still do that. Unfortunately, it's not Christian. There's a guy that does do the Bible, and he has yeah. tons of the Bible memorized, and he goes around the world. And he will, like, he did part of the half of Genesis, and when he got to the names, like the big half, he had all, like, he did all along. We had it, had it all. But in her case, it wasn't unusual. That's like her schooling. Everything was set up for that, and it wasn't our, like you said, and they did have those memory devices. We're amazed because we can't do this. We can't do the Bible, but I'm sure there's people around here that could name stats of football players for the past 25 years. <laughs> right? It's it's an it's a choice of what we choose to memorize, right? Yeah, it's not like we're not able, but right. we rely too much on written, where 
they didn't have it, so they relied on. Yes, exactly. We have, so, so we have about 5,500 documents. And what documents are is fragments or entire pages or entire books. So f documents denotes anything that they're attributing to New Testament text. That number, I have heard it range up and down a lot. This is this is my uh, mode number, okay? Well, every time a page falls in half. <laughs> <laughs> so this is 5,500 documents. The next closest, the next closest doc and document of antiquity is the Iliad, and it has. Again, these numbers vary, but about 1,200 document or pieces. Um, but the difference in age between when those pieces were written is a lot, like a thousand years. Um, within this 5,500 documents, Modern scholars believe we have the entirety of the New Testament in Greek exactly as we have it translated. And within what uh, age after the originals were written are those documents? Well, mid-second century. Yeah. So, but those, these documents, these documents here, these range from anywhere from the mid-hundreds to, to early 300 AD. So, so they cover a pretty good time frame. Well, and some of them are first century too, right? I mean, you got the 85 AD. Well, well yeah, some of them are, yes, some of them are. And that, but that's the earliest, is that fragment of John is the earliest. First, first to early 300s. Yes, somebody? The earliest documented Greek written language ever discovered. Or, you know, when was it actually um, became a, a written language? When was Greek a written language? Oh, it goes way, way, way back. All the way to hieroglyphs. Okay. Like as so, old as Hebrew. Okay. And so that was when? Like older than, oh, as old as the Old Testament almost. Okay. Yeah, but there's, Greek goes all the way back. Sorry. You know, that's fine. Greek is one of the original, along with the cuneiform stuff and all of that. Very, very old. Did, okay, so The, another uh, good example is the uh, history or the biography of Alexander the Great. They have uh, about a dozen of those documents, and those are about a thousand years displaced too. Which direction? Uh, AD, BC, or 
BC, they go, Alexander the Great would have been uh, BC, but the documents they have are from AD. And again, those were written down from oral traditions and, and information that those historians in that era had. And we consider them, we still use them in our textbooks. So the big difference here is that the, the New Testament was written down well within 200 years of the events that occurred. And there is 5,500 documents. Out of those 5,500 documents, modern scholars believe we have 100% of the Greek New Testament as it was written, as it was transmitted. So the next argument you're going to hear, and and it sounds scary, is that out of these 5,500 documents, there are thousands of errors. And I'm going to give you the big numbers because that's what the people out there trying to refute the New Testament are going to pull up. That says 500,000 errors in the Greek New Testament in these 5,500 documents. And, and by error, you mean uh, errant changes. We'll get there. Or, or, or do you mean just discrepancies? Okay, so, so we'll, get there. we'll get there. All right. Another word you can use and the textual critics will use if you want it to be, you know, Inflammatory, you'll use errors. If you want to be academic or polite, you'll use the word variant. Same thing. In the textual criticism, they mean the exact same thing. So let's, let's think about this for a second. If you have 5,500 documents written by who knows how many people, let's just say 5,500 people, right? It wasn't, but let's just say it was. And they're copying down thousands upon thousands of words over and over again. Are they going to make errors? Yeah, they are. They're going to make errors. I mean, we can't type with autocorrect without making errors, right? They're going to make errors. So. Of these 500,000 errors, over half are spelling. I don't know the word for it, but over the vast majority of that half of the grammatical errors is a grammatical thing the Greeks did where they would put an N at the end of a word. So John would be spelled J-O-H-N-N. If they took that off, if they didn't include that, that's a grammatical, that's an error. So that whatever, I don't, it's a Newman. I don't remember what it's called exactly. But anyways, that is a huge amount of the spelling errors. The others are transposing letters, um, and other just general spelling errors. So over half of the errors are spelling. The next large chunk 
are single event occurrences, what they call single event occurrences. These will be things where the scribe or author tried to elevate Jesus to a higher level or add a word here or there to, you know, make the text sound better or look better. That is well over a third of the remaining errors are these single events. So you're saying that it would be in like one particular text and then all the other ones stay the same? Yes, ma'am. That's exactly what I'm saying. These are these are items that happen that happen in an individual document and nowhere else. But since it happened in that document, it's considered an error or a variant. The last, yes, ma'am. That, that can be quite beguiling to, to throw all those in as errors because we do this type of thing all the time. If we were talking about a super event, and then somebody else said a super duper event, they would claim that as an error. Exactly. But that, that is how, the way I heard it described is this number should make us happy because that means we have that many documents to counter against each other to see what the actual message was. So the whole point of textual criticism is to take, and I guess I should have done that first, huh? Is to take antique doc or take documents from antiquity, compare them to each other to try to get to the original document. Since we do not have any of the original documents, we don't have any of what they call autographs. We don't have any of Paul's letters. What did you call that? Textual criticism? Textual criticism. The last of the errors, and I'll, again, I'll be generous, is about 3% that's left. Some of the some of the people will tell you it's as little as half a percent, but we'll say three percent. Of those three percent, so that means ninety-seven percent complete, right? Or ninety-seven percent on board, other than these minor things. Of those three percent that 3% represents errors that change more than a verse or several verses. If you pay attention to your Bible when you're reading it, this 3% is footnoted in all modern, most modern translations. It will tell you at the end of Matthew, is it at the end of Matthew where it has the ex mark? At the end of Mark, it has the little addendum and it's gonna be italicized that is because that is not in most of the older texts. So your Bible, modern translators, ugh, modern translators try to do their due diligence and their best to let you know when they have questions as far as translation goes. And if there is a document error or deviation that they're not sure how to deal with. Any questions on that? 
That is one of those passages, yes. Yeah, that, I noticed in the footnotes it said it wasn't in certain, okay. Yep. And I've heard, I think I've heard the argument on that passage that people didn't overuse their Bible until it fell apart that took it out. You know what I mean? So those, it's kind of hard to explain. But the Bible that you let sit on your shelf and you're not actually using is in the best condition, right? And when they took out the story of the of woman and the adultery situation, a group took that out. But then most, it wasn't well used, so then it was preserved. And so even though it's an older piece, it was found because so, it was like the brand new Bible that you never use on your shelf. Okay. Does everybody understand what she's saying? It's kind of convoluted. I mean, so... So and, and most, some people believe that the passage, even though the older Bible was found, that cut out that passage. They're saying it wasn't added later. People took it out, and it was always there. But then that wasn't a well-used Bible because pieces were cut out. You know what I'm saying? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I think I read that but that is why there is, so so do yourself a favor, and when you're reading your, your Bible, pay attention to the footnotes, all of them, as you're reading it. It's, it's important to do that, because that's the translators letting you know where there are possible issues. And, and many or most of those don't change. Right, I was going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. So, so let's say of these 3%, there are going to be textual places where it changes the meaning of that sentence or that phrase, but let's put this up there. Of those 3%, zero, zero percent affect any of the truth, any of the message, any of the prophecy, any of the historical data any of the moral teachings, zero, zero percent. So, yes, if... I respectfully disagree. <laughs> may, even though I'm a firm believer, I respectfully disagree with that. Now, I believe the words, personally, I'll say this and shut up, I believe the words of God are not changed. But the words of man can be erroneous. In what version are you are you referencing? Okay, so that's an English translation, not a Greek translation. This is Greek translation. So let me clarify that. This all of this data here is the original language, the Greek translation, right? It's zero percent in the Greek translation affects prophecy, moral teachings, historical. Any of it, it changes zero. It changes the message zero percent. But isn't it? But isn't the Greek based on the King James? Just joking. Just joking. Also recognizing that the King James translated 1611 
before many of these uh, so, uh, man manuscripts uh, were found that so, basically changed between the original King James and like the King James. Right, so let me address that real quick. We're almost out of time. The English translation. I will give you a very Reader's Digest of the English translation. Tyndale. Everybody's heard of William Tyndale. William Tyndale made the first English translation of the New Testament, 1525. Okay? The Tyndale Bible, as it was written in 1525, has remained pretty much unchanged, other than new information that they found in modern history, but for hundreds of years. The original Greek New Testament that Tyndale wrote stayed unchanged. They were incredibly dedicated to doing it the very best they could. After Tyndale, there are various Bibles. The first, if, and I think I'm correct, was the Geneva Bible, was the first Old and New Testament that was written from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. Before that, most of the English translations were done from the, the Vulgate, right? The Latin translations. As a matter of fact, it was punishable by death to translate them from anything but that. Um, can't remember his name. Jerome. No. I'm <laughs> I, I don't remember who did the Vulgate. Um, who did the 95 Thesis? Martin Luther. Yes. Nice little interesting fact. Martin Luther's conversion came not from the Latin translation that he read for his entire life, but from the Greek translation. The first time he read the Book of Romans in the Greek translation was when he believed what he believed and became a believer in Christ and grace through Christ was through the Greek translation. Okay, so the King James Bible was brought up. The King James Bible was translated using less than a dozen Greek texts. The King James translation was translated into English using less than a dozen Greek texts. Less than a dozen. Or manuscripts. Manuscripts, right. Less than 12. Okay. And they were just learning or just getting good at that language at that time because it had became it had been a lost language and then they found it and were <clears throat> bringing it back to life. So there was errors in the Greek translations as well. Um so a modern Bible compared to the original King James Bible is far more accurate than than what they had. Far, far, far more accurate. You know, that's actually, that knowledge is a wonderful thing to know for apologetics, to be able to, when people criticize and, and say, well, you know, Matthew and Mark says that two thieves reviled uh, the Lord, but Luke says only one did. But to be able to say, yes, in King James, that is true, but there's you know, additional research either going backwards or forwards has rectified that. So we can agree with them that there are some variants 
But instead of standing there like a deer in the headlight, we're able to say, well, okay, um, yes, but. That's, a, that's, that's actually a wonderful defense to be able to, and, and to acknowledge that and, and go forward. And also as a defense of the Bible, if they ask you why there's, that's, we'll talk, somebody's going to talk about that later. I'm pretty sure that's when we get later on again. So is there any questions as far as this goes? The English translation that we have today, scholars would say both for both Christian and non-Christian scholars would say that the translation we have today, the word-for-word -word translations, the ESV and the new revised version, um, are, yeah, maybe, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to hurry. <laughs> Anyways, are, are as close to the original language as we can possibly get at the moment. As close to, if not 100%. Read your footnotes and trust it. I was going to say also, if you read the uh, translators, like Intro to a Study Bible, ESV, I just got it in the pages. <laughs> yeah, read the forewords. Yeah, read the forewords to your Bibles. They are full of information. They'll actually tell you how the translators went about translating. And this isn't just one or two guys either. But we need to go. So let's see people walking around. So I'm going to say a quick prayer. Uh, Father God, thank you for this time of um, revealing that you have done a miraculous job of keeping your word, your message of love and grace and mercy to us untainted and unspoiled over thousands of years. Um, we pray, Lord, that we use this information to trust in you more deeply and that we use this information to help others understand that the Bible can be read um, for what it is and trusted for what it says. Uh, thank you for being awesome and uh, bless the service and bless us all and bring us all back safely. In Jesus' name, amen.